Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to another great episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest for you today, Yale Sivy. Yale, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to have uh, the conversation I think we're about to have. But listeners, before we get into that, I, what I want you to know about Yale, Yale is a licensed Gestalt psychotherapist, executive coach, and organizational consultant who has helped thousands of employees, managers, and leaders in Fortune 1000 companies and nonprofit organizations on topics related to authentic leadership, Emotional Intelligence, and Conscious Collaboration. She's also co-author on a book, Growing Up at Work, How to Transform Personally, Evolve Professionally, and Lead Authentically. Yale, I'm really excited with that background to hear how you answer that question I start all my guests with. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? So... I think responsible leadership uh, really is at the backbone of any great organization. So I think it's a wonderful starting point. And of course, there are many different ways to answer this question. My angle has to do with responsible leadership as the consequence of emotionally mature leadership. Um, I think it's very difficult for somebody to be responsible for themselves, for others, for the effect they have on the workplace if they lack proper emotional maturity. And emotional maturity is composed of a lot of things. You know, Daniel Goleman has talked about emotional intelligence, and I think it's quite connected, um, but 
for me, emotional maturity might go even a little deeper than emotional intelligence because it really has to do with sort of the degree to which one knows themselves and is willing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to keep becoming the most mature version of themselves possible. And for me, the most responsible leaders I know are dedicated to their personal slash psychological growth as they are to their professional growth. And I know that's a high bar, but it's it's part of why we wrote the book is to inspire uh, leaders and leaders to be uh, to achieve that. And, and that's how I'd answer it as, as of now. I hope that is a, a nice starting point. Oh, no, that is a fantastic answer. I, I love everything that you just said there. And, um, you know, there's so much that, that we can build on uh, just out of that, um, you know, especially the uh, the emotional maturity, the emotional intelligence. And, uh, you know, I, I even um, my my business partner and I, when we were first starting out, we we would talk about emotional ignorance. Right. That mm. lack of knowledge. Because uh, kind of what you're talking about, you know, Daniel Goleman, he's he's big in the space. A lot of people have heard about emotional intelligence. There's a lot of work being done around that. But, you know, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on this. What what we came to the conclusion was is where most of the damage happens in organizations, in leadership, in personal relationships are those areas of emotional ignorance where we just don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. Um, when I think about the leaders I have coached and the teams I have worked with, I think a hundred percent of the time, not not less, a hundred percent of the time, there is a lack of emotional maturity. And I like what you're saying. I mean, it's put very succinctly. It, a, a lack of emotional maturity, let's just say, could also be called emotional ignorance. Right. Um, that is at the root of what's going on, right? So. If a leader, for instance, still has an insecurity about their value in the workplace, I mean, this is just one of a zillion examples, Um, but therefore that leader is threatened by the success of others or threatened by others having as much or more power. That person, I think, is going to do all kinds of things, conscious and unconscious, to protect their turf, to seem smart, to be valuable. And in a way, they're doing kind of an emotional hustle in the workplace without even realizing what's going on. Yeah. 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 No, I love that. I mean, uh, you know, and I agree completely. And, and you know, kind of that, yeah, almost that imposter syndrome that you're talking about there seeping in and, you know, going into organizations where they have bullying issues and things like that. We mm-hmm. see that, that, that fear that, that, I have power now, but maybe I don't deserve this power and maybe this other person does. So I better undermine them before they shine the light on me. Right. Yeah, I think you named it. I mean, I think fear is probably at the root of so much of this fear um, of the unknown fear that I might not know everything, which P.S. is true (laughs) because no one knows everything. you know, fear of failure. Um, So I think there's a lot of fear. I I think leaders are reluctant to acknowledge that they're scared. You know, 
I think, and most of us are a little bit scared. Just being a human being can be scary. But being a leader, I think, is amplified because you do have to lead others. You have to inspire others. And if you're scared yourself or there's an emotional sort of wound or insecurity or something that needs attention, I think what we don't realize is we communicate our unconscious material to those around us very quickly. They pick up on it. They pick up on the fact that we're competitive or they pick up on the fact that we're insecure. They pick up on the fact that we're territorial. Um, And unless we attend to our own sort of psychological hygiene and our psychological growth, I think these things just have this insidious way of spilling out onto kind of everything else. And And on the most dysfunctional teams I've ever worked on and worked with, it's always going on. You know, and and unfortunately, I think there's like also a human way where we can sort of somehow gravitate to the lowest common denominator of psychological functioning around us. So I've seen teams that are spiraling because one person on the team is a real emotional mess and has a kind of an ability to create factions and sides and dramas and then we know like something really needs attention and oftentimes it's it's it starts with one person and then it sort of ripples out to the whole team to talk about what's what's really going on here right oh wow again powerful stuff there i've got a uh, a friend uh, of mine, you know, kind of uh, talking about that last person, a friend of mine uh, named Dov Barron, and he, he calls that uh, uh, emotional vomit, right? He <laughs> says, he says it, it's that thing that makes you feel really good, but it makes everybody else around you sick. I've never heard that term, and it, it hurts my stomach a little when you say it, but yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but but uh, you, you man, oh, you you've unpacked so much here already. We're not even ten minutes into this conversation. I feel like we've gotten almost a, a full a full podcast worth of content here because you're you're just hitting on so many things that that I think my listeners, you know, they're 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 hearing this and and they're just saying yes, 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 right? And and you mentioned personal hygiene and and, and all these things. Uh, why why do you think with your background and your experience, why do you think that we so easily ignore these things that when we hear other people say them seem so obvious? I mean, first first of all, I would start by the idea that just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy, right? So it sounds simple. Oh, I wrote a book about how good leadership is underpinned by emotional maturity. And in order to transform professionally, you just have to evolve personally, right? Right. It sounds simple, but it doesn't make it easy. Um, I've been in and out of psychotherapy myself for 20 years. I've been a psychotherapist for 20 years. I've, you know, done executive coaching for about that same amount of time. There is an interesting knowing doing gap that we all, I think, know about, right? That the difference between what our heads know to be true and what we may, might say and maybe, you know, give a speech on and, and believe, and then what we actually do, our kind of unconscious hustle, if you will. Um, so I think we, get in, we, we have this way of getting in our own way, oftentimes out of habit. So, so like in our book, you know, we, one of the things we talk about is the 13 lifelong practices for professional evolution. And one of them that I would invite people on this um, 
podcasts to consider that is, is one of, you know, many that I hope are helpful is to notice when the past is present. So what do I mean by that? You know, if you're in a, a difficult uh, dynamic at work, either as a leader or just as a professional, it, one of my big first questions when I'm working with a leader is, does this remind you of anything? Like, does this feel familiar to you? You know, is there a historical theme here? I, I'm working with a couple leaders right now, and they are entangled in a very kind of interesting way that has to do with their own life histories. One person has kind of a deep need to be liked. Many of us have this need. It's not that unusual. But if I'm operating as a leader from a place of needing to be liked versus needing to be respected and standing in my power where I do have it, I might make some strange decisions and act in some strange ways and compromise my own integrity because the need to be liked is, is driving me and I don't even realize it. Back to why do we, why do, we do these things? Right. There's a, you know, a thing driving me. Meanwhile, she's managing somebody who has a real kind of historical theme about don't control me. You know, I am autonomous. I have my independence. Camp comes from a family background where there was maybe invasion or control issues. So this person is like, don't control me. So we have these two people in relationship at work, ostensibly getting work done, but at an emotional level underneath the sort of professional level is this um, psychological dance around, I want you to like me and don't control me. And why haven't they been able to kind of manage this yet because none of this was really all that conscious to them until very recently. Mm. You Again, you, you hit on so much there with that. And, and I like where you went, especially with that, that concept of wanting to be liked. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll share two stories with you here and I'm kind of interesting, uh, interested to hear your take on both of them. So yeah. uh, I'll share the first one here. Uh, it's kind of a, I think maybe a negative spin on that. So uh, I was working with a leader, newly promoted into a leadership role, and uh, they they came in, I mean, <laughs> to quote the great philosopher Miley Cyrus, they came in like a wrecking ball, right? They, <laughs> they, they were making everybody mad. They were, you know, they were doing everything by the book, but they were disrupting, you know, kind of that, that history piece, that culture, that history, that way mm. the workplace worked versus kind of what was uh, sad, like in the, uh, you know, in, in the regulations for the office, let's just put it that way. And, you know, they were making people just really outright pissed off at them. (laughs) And when I, you know, was talking to this individual, they said, look, just before I got promoted, somebody gave me a piece of leadership advice that I took to heart. I said, what's that? They said, leadership's not about making friends. Yeah. And I said, you know what? That's not, terrible advice. I said, uh-huh. but it's not about making enemies either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good comeback. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so, you know, on the other hand, uh-huh. uh, you know, this is the one thing in, in the military, you know, having being a, a Marine Corps veteran, um, that that friendship piece was critical. Those building those relationships was critical. And what we knew in, in that environment, the way our leadership development ran was mm. there was a time and place for both. 
and everybody knew how and when to expect uh, that. And you had some people who were, you know, like the first example I mentioned there, who, you know, they were just, look, I am 24-7 captain, colonel, sergeant, whatever, such and such, and you will address me as that, and there's no middle ground. Mm -hmm. And then you had those people that, you know, were able to, I know when to be your friend, but I also know when I have to be the leader and the authoritarian. Yes. And and then we had the other people who were always the friend. And yes. in in again, almost a hundred percent of the cases there, the person who knew how to be both, do both, when to fill the role of friend and leader, friend and authoritarian, those were the ones that had the most success as a leader. Yeah, I think that's right. Um so you know, when it's all said and done, to me, leadership really consists of two things, and I'm not the first to say this. It's moving the work forward, getting the work done, right? In other words, tasks. And the other side is relationship. Like, what's the emotional sort of connective tissue between us? And am I building it and supporting it, or am I ignoring it? Um, so I think you're right that it doesn't have to be either or I sort of laughed when you said leadership is not about making friends because we, you know we have a chapter in our book called I'm their manager but I want to be their friend right. and I see this especially with leaders who were at the peer level with their colleagues and then they're promoted up so all of a sudden they do have to manage their friends um, and I think this is particularly difficult because in a way you have to re-navigate kind of your orientation to people. Um, and it's an art. I think you, you put it well. And maybe there's a time and a place for both. And once you have been elevated to a certain role as manager or leader, you know, you do have a different role to play. You, dif you have a different responsibility. You do, you have the power to make decisions about people's compensation, about whether they are getting particular assignments, whether they're going to get promoted. I mean, I think we can't also um, disentangle sort of from that role what, what, what power comes with it, and that to ignore that power, I think, can feel disrespectful to people and confusing. Um, so I think there is a respect for the power and the role that has to be in place. And sometimes that means you cannot be in on every fun get together that employees are having because maybe you shouldn't get drunk with your employees. You know, I don't know if you had a rule about that in the army, but my my guess is there should be lines, you know, and my sense is there should be lines that keep things sort of clean. But it doesn't mean you can't be friendly or maybe even friends with the people that work for you as long as you're aware, I think, of, of healthy boundaries for yourself and for them. And that's exactly it, you know, and I like that, you know, in those 13 lifelong practices, you have that create healthy boundaries and develop empathy for others, which uh, mm -hmm. I, I think is is great. And, you know, the healthy boundaries piece, I'll share, you know, another quick story from, yeah. from the Marines there. And, you know, one of my best friends to this day uh, was was one of those people, uh, Sergeant Rusty Alberall. Oh. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where when when we were off duty. He was rusty. When we were on duty, he was Sergeant Alberall. Mm. And there was no mixing the two up. And, mm. and one day, I forgot where we were, and I referred to him as rusty while we were in uniform. Mm. 
I was a lance corporal. He was a sergeant, so he was, you know, a couple ranks above me. And he proceeded to just rip me a new one. And then later that evening when we were off duty, he's all like, you know, look, Brian, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just had to. I'm like, no, you did the right thing. I'm the one that messed up here. You mm-hmm. did the right thing because, you know, we had that that relationship. And, and uh, I, th- I yeah. think that is critical, right? Right. And in that moment, what I'm noticing, oh, and sorry, I said the Army, you were in the Marines. Oh, They're not the same, right? It's okay. I, I, my, my grandfather was, was in the Army and my business partner was in the Army. So. Okay. Okay. I'll do respect to all the, all the branches. Um, in that moment, it, it seems like Rusty was kind of reminding you of his boundaries, but also kind of reminding you of yours, you know? Right. And that those boundaries are okay. Those boundaries keep us, I think, clear about what we're doing and how things are working. And, and in a way, some of this is a little bit constructed, like he was that rank and you were that rank. Does that mean you're, you know, like he's better as a human being? Of course not. But he does have more rank in the organization and that comes, you know, with a certain set of protocols or in, 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 in the military different perhaps than in corporate America. Um, but I think those boundaries are important and I think generationally this is something I'm, I'm sometimes sort of picking up on in the workplace and seeing that we may have different notions around those boundaries right um and like what is personal information and what's professional information i've heard managers say to me you know my my young employee is telling me all about their personal life and i feel like I'm their therapist or I should be. And, and how do I, how do I do this? Well, cause th- I never expected, I, I never told my manager quite this many personal things about myself. And I, so I think also what is tricky about all of this is the workplace and workplace expectations and employee expectations are changing. Yeah. And, and that, you know, again, what you hit on there is key. I mean, because the, the big reason why he, uh, you know, really put me in place is, is, and I think, you know, um, not sure if you've seen this. I'm assuming you probably have because it's so prevalent is, you know, if he had let that go, then he has to let that go when the next person does it or he's undermined all of his credibility. Right. And we see that in organizations when they are friendly, that they will let their friends get away with things that they don't let everybody else get away with. And then we get that nepotism, favoritism, and that just spirals the whole culture out of control really quick, doesn't it? That's right. I one of my favorite phrases that I sort of came up with a few years ago, and I now I no longer can remember if I came up with it or I read it somewhere. But I really do believe leaders set the tone. They set the tone all the time around them. They set the tone like he did in that case study, that little moment about language and how it's used and how he wanted to be addressed, not just for you, but like you said, for the people around you. Right. They set the tone around optimism and positivity versus negativity and cynicism. They set the tone for accountability. Do they hold people accountable for um, what they said they're going to do? They set the tone for psychological safety. Do they berate others publicly or create, you know, punitive, humiliating kind of um, situations? Or do they create a sense of safety that people can make mistakes, can be themselves and and, and, and that is supported. So I think he was doing, you know, maybe in one moment, it, it just had to do with kind of the language you were using. But I also think it's about setting the tone and letting people know, I think it's okay to step into your power as a leader. One of my biggest questions for leaders is, 
how do you relate to your own power? How do you feel about your power? You know, a lot of us have complicated feelings about power, not just our own power, but the power of others. So it's like a very worthy thing back to emotional maturity and self-awareness to interrogate what is my relationship to my own power and the power of others. You know, some, some of us just have a knee-jerk reaction that as soon as somebody else has power, we want to fight up against it. That's something to notice because if you're in organizational life, it's going to be pretty bumpy for you unless you're the CEO. And even the CEO has a board to report to. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you are, you know, scared of your own power and then you're given a title and you're not able to stand in it and make, you know, difficult decisions or send a hard message when it needs to be sent, um, you're also going to be sort of failing at some level. So I feel like there's also a power piece that, that is helpful to look at here, too. Well, right. And again, going back to that ignorance piece, I've ran into this quite a bit as well, is where a, a leader doesn't realize that that power and that perception of power, and they don't realize or fully understand why, uh, you know, the 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 workers act differently when I'm around. Yes. And, and that that's really a bit of it, right, is is those titles have some weight and gravity behind them. And you got to realize a, a, a good leader realizes the, the, the weight of that title just by the fact of having that title, right? That's right. And it's often easier to see the power we don't have than the power we do have. So I think this is part of the blind spot of leaders. You know, oh, I'm just one of the gang and, you know, I, the, I'm thinking of about another leader I work with who very much wants to be seen sort of as a peer or an equal to the team that reports to them. And on one hand, that's true intellectually, you know, they, they share a passion for their subject matter and they're technical experts. So they, they can just have that kind of professional collegial rapport with each other and share best practices about what's going on in, in their industry. There's, there, there is some way in which they're peers, but I think this person also underestimates what happens if they pick up the phone at 8 p.m. And, and, and makes a call to someone on the team and says, hey, do you have a minute? I just need to run something by you. If they don't realize that for people on the team who have, you know, high kind of deference to power, it's going to be very hard for them to set a boundary and say, hey, boss, I'm putting my kid to bed. Can, I, can we talk tomorrow? Um, and I think somebody who is conscious of their power understands that because they picked up the phone and they called the employee, that that already is sending a signal. And that to be blind to that in a way would be to be ignorant, back to your emotional ignorance of kind of the reality of the situation and the, and the impact power has on others. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll give you another kind of little case study here that yeah. I think is very interesting that ties into that. I love was, case studies. <laughs> well, so you'll, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this one because uh, it, it ties in perfectly with what you just said. Um, and, and listeners, I want you to, you know, really kind of absorb everything that's been said here. And, and you know, I know, again, you're, you're shaking your head north and south because you've been through this. You, you've <laughs> experienced this and maybe you're guilty of some of these things. Mm -hmm. But but in this instance, um you know, this was during the budget crisis, uh, you know, so in the 2008, 2009, 2010 timeframe, and this organization had a very healthy, uh, you know, relocation benefits for, for people moving in the organization to, to get promotions. Um, and, you know, the budget got tight and this leader 
you know, was on a conference call and just mentioned, you know, hey, this is how much it, it costs when we move somebody from one place to another, and this is the impact it has on the budget. That was it, right? Nothing else. They were just kind of laying out the numbers so everybody understood what that meant. Well, sure enough, after that conference call, uh, the next cycle of, of hiring uh, comes out, and there was a huge spike in the number of folks who were hired locally from before that conference call. Uh-huh. And they thought, okay, maybe that's just an anomaly. So the second round of hiring stuff comes out after that. And sure enough, there were a lot more local hires. And he gets back on another conference call with his leaders. They're talking about the budget. And, you know, he was talking about how, you know, they hadn't spent that much uh, out of the relocation benefits budget. And, you know, asked the question, you know, I'm I'm just kind of curious why. And somebody gets on on the call and says, well, you told us we needed to start hiring locally. And he's like, he asked the questions like, when did I say that? And he said, well, when you told us how much it cost and how, what the impact it had on the budget, we interpret that as you need to hire locally to help with the budget issue. And, and he had to spend the next, you know, 20, 30 minutes like saying, no, no, that's not what I said. I appreciate the idea. But, you know, is that just the gravity of being the, the leader trying to explain a, a, an issue People interpreted that a certain way to, to, to try to help, but you really have to be cognizant of, of how you say what you say when you're in that position too, right? I love that. Yeah, that's a great case study. Because um, what you're making me realize is when a leader speaks, they need, to pay, they need to pay attention to so many things, right? So I talk about the words and the music. So mm-hmm. first off, what are the words you're using and being really aware about the tone you're setting and being very intentional about the words you're using. Then there's the music. Oftentimes we don't even remember the words to a song after we've heard it in the car, but we have the tune in our heads, right? Right. What's the tone? Um, Do you want to set a hopeful tone? Do you want to set a a concern tone? Like what's your tone? So I, I think, you know, to me, this, your case study is a really nice invitation to leaders to be intentional about the words, the music. But then what I also hear is, the subtext or the potential interpretations or implications that may or may not be accurate. So, you know, one way I do this sometimes when I'm working with a couple, either, you know, a, a, a couple in a romantic relationship or, or literally a, a couple, uh, two people in the workplace who are trying to get along better, is I ask them to do a very basic uh, exercise, which is repeat what the other has said before we move on. And I can't tell you how many times um, there will be a misinterpretation or a misapprehension of what was said. So I do think that, you know, you can't necessarily do that on a town hall call. So I'm thinking about this alive. But I think in dyadic work, one thing to keep in mind is when managers have a conversation with their employees, it can literally be helpful to say, you know, I just want to make sure you understood what I said. Do you mind repeating it back? Because maybe I wasn't clear. So it's, you know, you can put it on yourself, but it's a nice way to check out whether you were heard. And then I'm thinking about your leader and feeling like maybe there could have been a postscript had they known that they were going to be misinterpreted to say, let me be clear. As I conclude, this is what I'm saying and this is what I'm not saying. Because otherwise, you know, one of my favorite sort of sayings from workplace dynamics all these years is in the absence of information, people make stuff up. Yes. Right. 
We have this funny need. We actually, I read this in a year or two ago in brain research. We get a dopamine hit every time our brain comes up with an interpretation for an unknown or unclear event. We just, we, it feels good. Like, oh, I know what happened. So people leave that town hall. Oh, I know what he said. He said we should reduce expenses by, you know, stopping the relocation packages. No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't say that. But your mind took the absence of information, made stuff up, or took his power and sort of felt like, you know, he was, he was reading, you were reading between the lines. So I think it's, it's, I always say there are two sides to the street, Earl, when it comes to pretty much anything relationally. And to me, the side of the street the leader has to be very aware of is how intentional they're being, how clear they're being, and whether they're being understood and, and, and checking it out. And then on the employee side, I think their side of the street is not making assumptions, noticing if there's an absence of information, then you can always follow up with a question. Hey, boss, you made mention of that relo expense. Was there subtext there? Are you suggesting we should blah, blah, blah? And he says, no. Okay. Huh. Didn't, didn't get that. Um, so I think we all have our work to do because otherwise I don't want all the responsibility to be on the leader, even though they have a disproportionate amount of it. Um, there also is responsibility, I think, on the employee side as well. No, again, I love it. And and I'm over here uh, smiling from ear to ear because, uh, you know, you explained it exactly the way I explained it. And, and to have somebody who's got your background uh, kind of uh, reaffirming, uh, you know, what I say, because I'll, I'll tell folks, uh, you know, communication is so much more about what is heard than what is said. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, you've got to really, really grasp that because you can think uh, that that you are saying one thing, but if they're interpreting it another way, that's what you actually said. And, um, you know, that piece about information, again, that's, that's what I say. I, I go back and say it's basic, you know, elementary science. Nature abhors a vacuum. Uh-huh. If, if you leave an information vacuum, it's going to be filled in and it's going to be filled in with gossip and rumors. And what we know about gossip and rumors is they're always bad and they're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, uh, yeah. so I love that. I love that piece there quite a bit. Now, uh, I, I kind of want to circle back a little bit to something that, that you had mentioned earlier that, you know, can, can help with a lot of this. I do believe you mentioned, uh, you mentioned psychological hygiene. Uh, wh- what is that? What, what do you mean when you talk about psychological hygiene? You know, I've been asked this before, and I feel like there's probably so much to it, Earl. We could be here probably for weeks unpacking it. So I'll just try to give you some highlights. Um, I think psychological hygiene, first and foremost, starts with asking oneself in any situation, in any dynamic, what is my role here? What role did I play here? What did I say? What did I do? How did I get activated slash triggered? Because it is so tempting, right? When something goes wrong or something hurts or something um, is different than we expect to blame others. I mean, the blame factor is so fast and so human of us. Um, But to me, psychological hygiene or psychological maturity says first like, huh, how did I contribute to this dynamic? What's my piece of this puzzle? You know, where, where did I um, play a part? So to me, that is always so exciting as a coach is to look at that material because after about 10 minutes of a leader telling me how, 
how messed up everyone else is. <laughs> not only do I get bored, but I say to them, you know, but I'm not coaching everybody else. I'm coaching you. So like, can we look at your piece? So to me, psychological hygiene definitely starts with looking ourselves in the mirror to say, what is my piece of any given dynamic? If I'm upset, if I'm defensive, if I'm riled up, what happened? You know, what button did, what button got pushed? How did that get pushed? Is it part of my psychological history? What do I need to pay attention to right now? You know, I was in a conversation with someone yesterday who gave me feedback about something and my instinct was to feel defensive and kind of hurt. And, you know, I'm a therapist, so I just named that. And I said, oh, I notice I'm feeling a little unsettled and hurt. A little confused the person a little bit like that. You know, they're not used to that kind of emotional honesty, but that's just how I roll. And I realized that just with a little bit of time, and I'm talking 5, 10, 15 minutes of sitting with that discomfort, that someone said something and it, and it hurt, that I got curious about the hurt, and I got curious about what they said, and I got curious about the truth of the feedback. And I'm not trying to put myself up as a poster child for psychological hygiene. I'm just saying I've been doing this work for long enough that I could sort of employ another part of my mind, not the mind that got triggered by hurt, but the mind that could observe the hurt and say, well, uh-oh, what just happened? What just happened? Um, so I would start there and I would just say that whenever we go into a place, the conscious leadership group calls it below the line, whenever we go into any kind of drama, whether, whether we're unconsciously playing the victim the villain or the hero of a drama. And we all have like, you know, split second ability to get into little dramas. I think it behooves us to step forward to ourselves basically and say, whoa, where am I? How did I get into drama? And how can I get out of it and do kind of like a, a more mature move? How can I pivot out of this? It usually means taking responsibility for ourselves, our actions, our lives. And that to me is just delicious stuff because that's like the lifelong journey. Yeah, no, again, I, I love, I love that piece there. Cause I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, stoic philosophy and that's, mm -hmm. that's really the, the crux of that, right. Is, is focus on what you can control. And when you really yes. look at it, you are the only thing that you can control. That's right. Um, and, and, and that's on a good day, Earl. Right. Yeah. No, that's it. But, you know, I think that is, um, you know, I, I think what you did there is, is again, it, it is a good example of, of setting back and taking uh, a look at the different parts of what's going on. And that goes back to kind of your, your background uh, with Gestalt psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, what I love about Gestalt, the first time I was introduced to Gestalt was at a place called the Esalen Institute. Um, in Big Sur, California, I was kind of like one of the first, if not the first retreat center in this country. Um, and, you know, one of the things that both drew me, but also was kind of edgy for me is when you are speaking sort of from a gestalt perspective, you're talking about what is going on here and now with me and between us that I want to address. So like what I did with that person yesterday when I shared, you know, they said this thing and instead of immediately getting defensive, um, I just became curious and reflective about myself and I shared it. I self-disclosed. That's another important piece. Like we're trying to build connection through our vulnerability and through our emotional honesty. So, you know, I, it's not polite 
sort of chit chat that I'm talking about. It's like the real deal. So if your manager, you know, says something to you about their unhappiness with your performance and you're tempted to get defensive, you can get defensive, but the self-reflective gestalt move would be to say, you know, I notice I am really tempted to get defensive right now and I'm feeling uh, scared and I'm feeling angry and I'm feeling misunderstood oh, let's talk about that, right? So when I was first introduced to this at Esalen and then later did postgraduate work in Gestalt psychotherapy, it just felt like such a relief to me to name the thing that's actually happening between us or what I'm actually feeling as opposed to skipping over it. And that's a you know, big way in which I work with my clients and really try to encourage them to, to communicate generally. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you know, listeners, because, uh, you know, I have a lot of veterans that listen to this podcast, a lot of veteran entrepreneurs, uh, you know, what what Yale is, is talking about here, you know, this is when we look back at those those warrior cultures that we kind of idolize, this is, this is what they did, right? This is what the samurai did. This is what the Vikings did. This is what the Spartans did. This is this level of thinking and understanding and viewing the world around you uh, was very deeply rooted in those cultures. Uh, you know, when you go back and, and you look at the art of war, if you go back and look at the uh, the book of five rings, like a lot of this stuff that we're talking about here is, is heavily present in those texts about taking the time to, to, uh, to, to have moments of introspection and, and think about who you are and, and ask yourself that question, why? Why did I react the way I reacted to yes. that, that stimulus? And That's right. It's, That's right. It's I'm always great. humbled, Earl, when I think I'm, ha- I'm having like a novel thought and then I go back and I realize, you know, Aristotle said this thing, the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and you're not alone, right? Uh-huh. It's the same thing here. Is is I, I've I've come real quick to the realization that all all we're doing today is rediscovering and resolving problems that were already solved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably true. And we have new ways of communicating and sharing that knowledge with others. So I do think it's it's a different moment in time, and yet maybe the wisdom is still you know as they say in the world of meditation, do you know this word called grok? Uh, I've not heard that actually. Okay. To grok something is to take it beyond just our mental understanding of it and to embody and live it. So, you know, the Greek philosophers and as you're indicating, you know, maybe ancient warriors um, have been talking about this. So we're talking about these, some of these ideas for a long, long time, but have we really grokked them? Have we really embodied them? as a as a you know human kind of species i don't think so i think we're still learning right to 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 bridge that knowing doing gap uh yes no is is one of my other friends uh jim bouchard says same thing as as yours before he goes i'd like to think i came up with it but i probably heard it somewhere else he says uh uh perfection isn't a destination it's a never-ending journey yeah yeah human i think the human experience too it always is a nice reminder to me like you're not done we're not done. We're just, you know, what's next? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and I always remind people, like, how, how sad would it be if, if you won life one day? Like, <laughs> th- then what's next, right? right. Nothing. You won. <laughs> so, so I love that. I love that a lot. Um, 
Yael, this has been a great conversation, and I can't believe we're already over 40 minutes here. Mm. Um, this this has just been wonderful. I, I've had a blast so far, but but I got to ask, you know, before we get out of here, is there anything that we didn't really get a chance to, to cover uh, that you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? Sure. And thank you for the opportunity. Um, so, you know, if you're intrigued by the things we've talked about today, um, I would encourage you to pick up our book, Growing Up at Work. Um, and one of the things I think that's kind of interesting about how we wrote it is we tried to impart some overall lessons learned. We call them the lifelong practices for personal transformation and professional evolution. I know that's a mouthful. Um, and we talked about a few of them today, including knowing when the past is present and practicing healthy boundaries. Um, and, and that is, those practices to me, if everyone was practicing just one of those things, the workplace, I think, would be a much, a far healthier and far more enjoyable place to be because it's, it is often unsatisfying to be around people who are emotionally unhealthy. It, it can really wreak havoc. But then the other thing I wanted to say is the book is organized into case studies. So we have 11 chapters based on real life examples of coaching clients that we've worked with. So, Earl, you mentioned, um, the, I think the imposter, uh, chapter, um, that's chapter one, probably one of the most common, you know, phenomena that we, uh, learn about at all levels of leadership. I feel like an imposter, uh, chapter two, we also talked about a little bit. I'm their manager, but I want to be their friend. So the chapters are written based on these different case studies. And you really get to look sort of behind the scenes at what goes on in coaching from a gestalt perspective, that is going deeper and not just going to the behavioral level of change, but what is deep, what is going on at a more subterranean level in, in, in the sense that we're getting in our own way. So I would encourage people, you don't have to read the book in a particular order and you can just pick it up. And my fantasy has always been someone might read chapter four called I'm just not good enough. And they might really relate to that chapter, but they might lend the book to their sister you know, because chapter seven is called people think I'm a jerk. And you might say very gently to your sister, hey, maybe you should read this chapter. Um, so I'm hoping that the book sort of meets people in different places of where they are. And frankly, as the person who wrote the book, I can see myself in every chapter. So that's another way to look at it, too, is that as human beings, we know all of these different experiences. And that is both beautiful, but also challenging. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I would say as, as a way to finish up. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love that. And, and I think that is a, a great kind of guide on how to use the book. I didn't really think about it that way, but as you were explaining it, I can absolutely, absolutely see that. Um, so if folks want to find out uh, more about you. They want to get a copy of the book. Uh, what is a good place for them to go look and find out all that information? Great. So the book is sold wherever books are sold. And that's you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. But also if you just go into your local bookstore and order it, it can usually be there in a couple of days. So we love local bookstores and encourage people uh, to check it out. And, um, and if you'd like to talk to us or you'd like to learn more about our work, our website, uh, my partner and I have a consulting coaching business and our business is called Collaborative Coaching. And you can check us out at collaborative-coaching.com. Mm. 
And listeners, uh, we will make sure that that uh, link gets in the show notes. So they're only a uh, link click away and, and you can uh, have access to uh, to their services and find out more information there. Um, Yael, uh, again, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed everything you've had to say here. I've really enjoyed the work. Uh, I want to just echo uh, listeners, go grab a copy of the book and uh, do what she said. You know, uh, you know, help pass around with friends, encourage them to get their own copy because I think it's worth it. Uh, but also, you know, feel free to pass it around. Uh, but Yale, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for having this discussion. Thank you for sharing your depth of knowledge on these topics uh, with me and my listeners and being an outstanding guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Mm, this is really fun, Earl. Thank you for having me. And I love the idea that you are helping spread the word about responsible leadership. I think the world will be a much better place with more responsible leadership. So um, I, I, I support your message uh, wholeheartedly. Thanks again. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, guys. It's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour. Electric acid.